welcome to another edition of the UK Law Weekly Podcast with me, your host, Marcus Clover. This week we're going to be looking at the case of the Crown on the application of Palestine Solidarity Campaign Limited and Secretary of State for Housing, Communities and Local Government. The citation for this case is 2020 UKSC 16. Now, the appellants in this case are the Palestine Solidarity Campaign, who are a pressure group based in England and Wales, with the aim of providing awareness and support for the plight of Palestinian peoples. That commonly involves lobbying and hosting events to raise awareness, but it also means protesting against the government and policies of the State of Israel. In practical terms, this means supporting a campaign of boycott, divestment and sanctions in order to put economic pressure on Israel, and it is with this background that we approach the proceedings before us today. Local governments in the UK have their own pension schemes which employees and the authority contribute to. That money is used to make various investments in order to maintain and hopefully increase the size of the pension fund. There is some guidance in how such schemes should be administered, particularly in relation to the idea of making ethical investments. The idea here is that you don't want some local council investing in North Korea when the UK national government has condemned that regime. However, ethical investments can also be a positive thing and allow for consideration of the political, moral, social and even environmental effect that the money can provide. The legal basis for such guidance originally comes from the Public Service Pensions Act 2013, which gave the Secretary of State the power to make regulations in respect of the quote, administration and management end quote, of local authority pension schemes. The relevant regulations here are the Local Government Pension Scheme Management and Investment of Funds Regulations 2016, and these require local authorities to formulate an investment strategy that both explains, quote, how social, environmental and corporate governance considerations are taken into account, end quote, and is in line with guidance issued by the Secretary of State. It is this guidance document that the Palestine Solidarity Campaign took issue with, and more specifically two passages. The first states, quote, The government has made clear that using pension policies to pursue boycotts, divestment and sanctions against foreign nations and UK defence industries are inappropriate, other than where formal legal sanctions, embargoes and restrictions have been put in place by the government, end quote. Meanwhile, the second problematic passage reads that authorities, quote, should not pursue policies that are contrary to UK foreign policy or UK defence policy, end quote. When the case went to the High Court, it was held that the Secretary of State had indeed exceeded his powers by including these two passages in the guidance. The government appealed to the Court of Appeal and was successful, so the Palestine Solidarity Campaign now appealed to the Supreme Court, which is where we pick things up. Lord Wilson gave the lead judgment and began by noting that when it comes to deciding whether a minister has exceeded their powers, it is necessary to examine what powers were actually handed to them by Parliament. The seminal case on this point is the 1968 decision in Padfield and Minister of Agriculture, Fisheries and Food, which talks about the importance of looking at the enabling powers within their context. This can tell us about the exact nature of the power and its scope. With this in mind, the justices went back to the 2013 Public Service Pensions Act, which, as we quoted above, talks about the administration and management of a fund. 
That's a useful start, but the subsequent 2016 regulations offer a bit more context by requiring authorities to specify how other factors are taken into account, including ethical investments. The two tests that are used in this regard derive from the guidance issued by the Secretary of State that is at the heart of these proceedings. The first is whether the proposal involves a significant risk of financial detriment to the scheme, and the second is whether there is good reason to think that members of the pension scheme would support the proposal. What we can glean from this is that the language that is used throughout the legislation is all about the process that is to be undertaken by local authorities when coming to a decision, rather than the substance of whatever ethical investments there actually are. The problem is that this doesn't then marry up very well with the political directives issued by the Secretary of State that are the subject of review here. As a reminder, these were that the strategies should not pursue boycotts, divestment and sanctions unless the UK government also has such restrictions in place, and also that the policy of such a fund should not run counter to UK foreign policy. Those guidance are very clear about the type of actual investment that should be made, rather than the process of formulating an investment strategy, and it was therefore held that those extracts from the guidelines exceeded the power of the Secretary of State. Lord Wilson noted that this likely happened because there was a misunderstanding by the Minister that the people who administer the pension schemes of local authorities are part of the overarching machinery of the state at that level. In reality, they are much closer to being something like trustees who are required to act in the best interests of beneficiaries. It's just that in this instance, the beneficiaries happen to be members of a local authority pension scheme. By issuing the guidance in question, the Secretary of State was interfering with the fiduciary duty of the scheme administrators. Furthermore, the argument from the government in this case that the money in the pot represents taxpayer money is false because it is based on direct contributions from employees. Even if there are contributions from a public employer, the fund is still the pension scheme of private individuals. Before we move on, it is important to note that this was a majority decision of 3-2, to two, and there was a joint dissenting judgment from Lady Arden and Lord Sales. They also used the Padfield case to look at the context of the powers granted to the Secretary of State, but reached a different conclusion. The legislation was passed as a result of the Hutton Report and sought to encourage good and proper governance when it comes to public sector pensions. The Secretary of State was entitled to be worried about decisions based on non-financial grounds, either undermining UK foreign policy or even being tacitly racist in nature. Given that such schemes are likely to be associated with the British state, it is reasonable that the government will issue guidelines that also cover more procedural aspects of administration when it comes to ethical investments. The starting point for our own analysis has to be which side had the better argument here, and I think for me this comes down to an understanding of what exactly the pension scheme is. For the minority, it was ultimately an extension of the British state, and so it made sense that guidance should require it to operate in a manner that was consistent with the policies of the government, especially when it comes to non-financial matters. For the majority, the scheme was run for the benefit of employees, and so government policy should play absolutely no role whatsoever. In the end, I am more inclined to agree with the majority. The dissenting judgments are based on the idea that to an outsider, such as a member of the public or a foreign government, 
the pension schemes have the appearance of an extension of the British state, and any decisions then reflect back onto the central government. That may be the case, but it doesn't describe the reality of the situation. Fundamentally, this is the pension scheme of the employees, and to make that scheme subject to the strictures of government policy is deeply unfair and unreasonable. I am also inclined to agree with the majority's interpretation of the context surrounding the underpinning legislation. While it is true that the rules did emerge out of the Hutton report into public sector pensions, good administration of a fund does not necessarily equate to towing the line on government policy. Instead, it is better to look at the legislation itself, and it is here that I think the argument of the majority really comes into its own. Consistently throughout the Act and the statutory instrument, the language that is used is about the process of managing a pension fund, rather than what it is and is not appropriate to invest in. This is even acknowledged in the guidance itself by looking at the two tests that are worded in very broad terms. In terms of other general conclusions that we can draw, I do need to make clear that we are not going to be resolving the Israel-Palestine conflict in the last few minutes of this podcast episode, but we can maybe make a few comments about boycott, divestment and sanctions, or BDS for short. It is the policy of the UK government to take a very friendly stance towards Israel, and that is fine because it is a political decision. You get what you vote for, and if the trade-off is that you get some very nice and lucrative defence contracts in return for turning a blind eye to some pretty latent breaches of international law, then that just tells its own story about the UK political class. However, trying to turn opposition to the campaign of boycott, divestment and sanctions against Israel into official government policy, or even legislation, is taking things too far. The question is about whether BDS is a legitimate form of protest, and the answer should be fairly obvious because while the decision not to buy Jaffa oranges is a political choice, it is also an economic decision that any person should be free to make. It has long been the case that economic pressure can be exerted to effect peaceful political change. The only reason that BDS is questioned in relation to Israel is because of issues around anti-Semitism, which do have to be taken seriously. This became most apparent in the last general election campaign where the Labour Party blurred the lines between political criticism against the State of Israel and racist attacks on Jewish people. The Conservative Party capitalised on this by allying themselves further with Israel and won the last general election in no insignificant part because of this. As pledges on the campaign trail turned into government policy, it became possible that we could see anti-BDS legislation in the lifetime of this parliament that directly prohibits public bodies from supporting boycott campaigns. The exact form of any proposal is yet to be seen, but we have seen from this case that the government is prepared to overextend itself when it comes to its attacks on BDS, and the same has been true of other areas of semi-public life as well, such as universities and cultural institutions where funding has been threatened in the past. No matter your stance on the conflict, this ought to be a concern because it is a direct threat to free speech. We don't often associate our democracy and the economy with one another, but the truth is that the way we spend our money matters and allows us to make decisions of conscience. 
Even in the current coronavirus pandemic, we see this in operation as many people will no longer go to Weatherspoons after this is all over because of the way that Tim Martin has treated its staff. Meanwhile, others will be more determined than ever to support local retailers once stores reopen. Maybe this will make a difference, and maybe it won't, but every day people vote with their wallets, and an assault by the government on this is a deliberate form of disenfranchisement that should be resisted, no matter the cost. Well, thank you very much for tuning into this podcast episode, and thanks as ever to bensound.com who provide the theme music. Remember, you can check out UK Law Weekly on all of the various social media platforms. On Twitter, we are at UK Law Weekly. You can search for UK Law Weekly in Facebook and you'll come across our Facebook group, which now has more than 100 members. Um, We don't have a separate Instagram, but my Instagram is mlcleaver. Um, I'm not particularly active on there, but um, feel free to drop us a follow anyway. Anyway, I'll be back with another case next week, but for now, bye!